Hey friends, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. This is an Aftershock special episode. Today I am interviewing a really great friend, Dr. Anita Sengupta, who is um, a rocket scientist and an aerospace engineer. And uh, she spent a lot of time looking at things in outer space and an incredible person. Uh, from 2012 to 2017, she managed and led the development of the Cold Atom Laboratory, a laser cooling quantum physics facility, which is now on board the International Space Station. With me today, talking about the future, Dr. Anita Sengupta. Dr. Anita Sengupta, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. This is an Aftershock special episode where I'm interviewing all the contributors, uh, co-contributors uh, to Aftershock and getting to know who they are, what they do, and what do they think about the future? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell me about, tell me exactly where you are today, which part of the world are you in? What is happening outside of where you are? What's happening in the world outside? So I'm based in Los Angeles uh, County, close to downtown LA, about 15 miles to the north of it. And we're obviously in the thick of the current pandemic crisis with COVID-19. Um, it's actually raining here. The weather has become more like Seattle over the course of the past few weeks. Um, the sky has never been clearer because of the absence of traffic, both on the ground and in the air. You know, I'm speaking to so many people as part of my, my podcast, and I've got people, you know, in a few of the days I'm interviewing a few people and, uh, and so on and so forth. I was just talking um, with uh, with someone from the UK, and this is Richard, the, uh, the the real Iron Man, the guy who flies with uh, those things around his arms. And he was in his workshop. He's telling me the same things, and you know how the world is outside. I was talking to uh, somebody in Singapore a couple of days ago. It's the same thing. Everybody's seeing the same world outside. Things are shut down. No pollution. Um, and all of these effects that COVID-19 has done to our world. Do you think COVID-19 is a wake-up call? Do you think it's a stress test? Or do you think, um, do you think otherwise? What are your thoughts? So I, I have so many conversations on all my web uh, telecoms with people about this topic, both friends, family members, and colleagues. And I think it's both. I think it's a wake-up call. I think it is a stress test. Um, I think it showed us that we weren't prepared to be able to handle this type of medical crisis from everything from supply chain um, just to the ability to provide people basic medical equipment. I think it's a stress test on the economy in terms of seeing how it looks like a lot of individuals and businesses are a bit over leveraged. Um, but I also think it's a wake up call. And it was, uh, and of course, it's a terrible disaster, but it was also kind of from a scientific perspective, an interesting experiment on human uh, cause climate change because how else could you ever have imagined an experiment where the entire world would shut down all of their heavy industry, all of their transportation, both on the ground and in the air, and to see the impact? And I listened to something on the news only about two days ago, and I don't know the reference for it, but the newscaster said that Los Angeles now has the cleanest air of any major metropolitan city in the world. This obviously is because of the elimination of traffic, both on the ground and the air. So that's a wake-up call to see how much of an impact we are having and also how easily we can correct it from a climate change perspective. So you're, 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 an, you're and very well said. So you're an expert in urban transportation. You've done so much. You've, you've worked with Hyperloop. 
Um, you have a couple of master's degrees. Like you're literally uh, a stuff of legends. You know what you're talking about. You know the industry. You, you, you're the much needed expert who can help us guide about transportation, how things will be in the future. What will people do when it's about going from one place to the other? And there are so many scenarios in the world. Like we're, we're talking about Aftershock here and Aftershock is a book that uh, has been written uh, by over 50 different futurists uh, in the world today. Uh, they all compiled this book together, put together our, our friend John Schroeder, and everybody's put their thoughts and ideas into it. Now, Aftershock has happened as part of Alvin Toffler, who wrote Future Shock 50 years ago and spoke about what the world will be like, what will happen 50 years from now. Now, here we are 50 years after that, writing Aftershock. And let's talk about the future that he probably envisioned. And I don't think, did he ever write about technologies such as Hyperloop? I don't think so. Um, and obviously he was a little bit before, I guess, uh, before my time in terms of uh, the, the revolutionary work that he did. Uh, but certainly he set the path forward for what the future could look like. And I think part of what makes it so important, the original book and the current book, is thinking about changes to society, just not in terms of the next whiz-bang technologies, but about the impact that technology has on us as a society and specifically on our planet and its health. Absolutely. So let's talk about Hyperloop. It's a revolutionary technology. I want to dive into one or two different things that we're going that are very future forward uh, and what the world will potentially see in the next 10 to 25 years. Tell us about Hyperloop. Is it, is it really something very dramatic that we should watch out for? So I think Hyperloop is an amazing ground-based technology transport. It's a form of mass transit. It's a form of green mass transit. The best way to describe it is a maglev train operating in a vacuum tube. Now, the reason why you want to have a maglev train operating in a vacuum tube is that as you go faster and faster in speed, aerodynamic drag happens to be your primary energy consumption. So if you can remove the air around the vehicle by putting it inside of a vacuum tube, you can go to incredibly fast speeds with low energy consumption. What is also fascinating about Hyperloop is that it was sort of um, thought about and invented in science fiction, if you will. If you think about the Jetsons back in the day, people were moving around at high speeds and shoes. And the good news is that in order to get the benefit of aerodynamic drag elimination or reduction, you don't have to be at space rated levels of vacuums, which I spent most of my career um, dealing with uh, those kinds of technologies. You just have to be at roughly 1% of atmospheric pressure. So it's actually more similar to the surface pressure on Mars. And you can use many existing technologies from a vacuum technology perspective, from a, from a sort of structure that can hold the vacuum, and even from the design of the passenger vehicles that carry people, as well as the magnetically levitating technologies and electric motors necessary to get you up to those fast speeds. You can think of it as sort of a system integration activity to give you a brand new form of very efficient high-speed transportation. Mm -hmm. So is Hyperloop, a, uh, is Hyperloop itself a brand name or is it a set of technologies? Is it licensed, licensed by one company? Because I know there's a few different Hyperloop developments taking place in the world. Uh, something in Saudi Arabia, somebody's talking about DC, New York. Uh, there's a bunch of different things happening. Can you help us understand what, what they are? So there are many companies sort of in the startup entrepreneurial space who are developing Hyperloop technologies. I do believe that the name uh, was trademarked by Elon Musk in the United States and then a different company um, in other countries in the world. So I don't know the legality of whether or not you can use it or not. It seems as though um, Elon Musk isn't pushing back necessarily on uh, that trademark name. 
Um, but we're really, and, and even Hyperloop doesn't make sense because it's not going at hypersonic speed and it isn't going in a loop. So it's actually just sort of like a catchy sort of science fiction name. Uh, so you could call it anything and it wouldn't make too much difference. In Los Angeles, we actually have two companies, one of which I work for, which is Virgin Hyperloop, and the other one, which is known as Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. They're both based in Los Angeles area. I've also worked um, with a company called Heart, which is working on Hyperloop development based in um, the Netherlands. They recently had a press release come out. And I've also um, had conversations, um, you know, at different conferences with a company called TransPod, who's located in Canada, actually where you are. So the good news is that the technology is being developed globally by um, startup companies in the entrepreneurial space. And one of the best ways to bring a new technology to market is to have that kind of competition and that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Okay, amazing. And that was exactly what I wanted to get clarified because I know Virgin had a Hyperloop. I know Elon Musk had something to do with it as well. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't clear now and I'm reading from the book you say once a government amasses the funds and courage to implement a hyperloop we can enable a future that connects Los Angeles to San Francisco in 30 minutes city center to city center so you're looking at rapid mass transit frictionless um, what are some of the risks that that are associated with hyperloop or a technology of that type not necessarily Picking anybody uh, in particular? So I think the big challenge um, for implementing any ground-based transportation system, whether that's high-speed rail, which is an existing technology, or Hyperloop, is that it costs a lot of money. And we're talking many, many billions of dollars to be able to physically build the thing, plus you have the internal technology development risk of going with something which is a new technology. So one of the challenges that you'll even see in California with the implementation of high-speed rail is that there's a lot of um, opposition to it just because of the pure cost. So you add in the technology risk and it makes it more expensive, which is why I use the word courage, because sometimes if you want to implement something brand new, you do have to take a leap of faith to be able to do the next big thing, which I think is really important from a disruption perspective. I think that a society is the best way to kind of mitigate that risk because it has a larger bank account behind it than an individual does. Um, I forgot the second part of your question. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So yes, and I'm seeing particularly a lot of interest um, in Hyperloop in the Middle East. I, I work really closely with uh, some Middle Eastern governments, government of UAE, Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of talk about Hyperloop and what it can do. I, I myself talk about Hyperloop a lot when I'm speaking and I'm, at, I'm doing engagements in terms of helping people understand, hey, there's something revolutionary when it comes to urban transportation. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. I was part of a, uh, an exercise. Uh, the, um, it was the Dubai uh, Roads and Trans Transportation Authority they did, uh, and they were projecting and creating models for the next 100 years until the year 2071, which is their 100th anniversary of the nation. And so they came up with three, these four different scenarios of what the world of tomorrow will look like. And a transit system like this is, is really in, the, in one of the models that we could have potentially Hyperloop technology deployed and Abu Dhabi to Dubai is 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is. Uh, I just want to add one more thing though, because I think this vital implication is really important, is that we shouldn't develop technologies for convenience. We should develop them because they're solving a challenge. And so what's beneficial about ground-based transport systems is that they can operate off the grid, and the grid, of course, can come from renewables. But we shouldn't purely do it with the convenience of being able to go see a show in Vegas and come back in 10 minutes, because that's actually quite wasteful. We want mass transportation to solve transportation needs, to connect people who have difficulty getting from point A to point B. We want to address rural communities. So it shouldn't be done simply for the convenience 
of facilitating a person going to see a show. And that's something that's very important to me that we don't misuse um, investment in mass transportation to um, not solve the real problem, which is connecting people to goods and services. Absolutely. And point, point well taken. Let's move on from ground to space. And you've written about space travel in, your, uh, in, in the book as well. Uh, I want to ask you, there's obviously a race to go to space and a few companies, including SpaceX, uh, Virgin Galactic, and, and, and others are trying to create this new frontier of starting with space tourism. Let, let's go out to you know, the, uh, the orbit and just touch the edge of space and come back. It's amazing. I love it because it pushes our boundaries um, to think further. I don't know if you're a movie watcher and if you've seen any recent, if you've seen Ad Astra. Uh, it's a new movie that came out with Brad Pitt in it. And it's really about this, um, uh, you know, person, he, he goes to, I think, to the far edge of the universe or the solar system, to the solar system, not the universe. And that journey, and there's a journey, and there's, a, there's space travel, years and years and years of space travel. That really expanded my horizon on, oh, my God, what could the next 20 or 30 years look like? Tell us a little bit about where we are with respect to space travel. So one of the big challenges of space travel, specifically sending people into orbit, is the cost. So the cost is rather tremendous if you think about it, a per kilogram or per pound. And so a company like SpaceX has done a really good job revolutionizing launch vehicle technology to reduce the cost of sending something to orbit, whether that's low Earth orbit or geostationary orbit or beyond the moon, let's say. So commercial space uh, companies such as Blue Origin and SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Boeing and Lockheed and all those players are doing their part to reduce the cost to get into space. And so that's pretty much the big tentpole right now as to why we don't see more things going up into orbit. And there is, to be honest with you, a very large carbon footprint associated with it. So just like I said before about you shouldn't do things for joyrides, I think the same thing applies for space travel. But what I'm a fan of is creating a space-faring society where if you go to um, a TV show like The Expanse, which is based off of a book series, um, it's about how humanity lands into the stars beyond Earth, so setting up colonies on the moon, setting up colonies on Mars, and then setting up colonies in the main asteroid belt. So I support that kind of model of using these new developed commercial launch vehicle technologies to facilitate in-space manufacturing, in-space assembly, and setting up that infrastructure to support that future human expansion Amazing. So let's come back to Earth now. Let's come back to our present era and where we are. Uh, we are amidst um, the COVID-19 disruption era and transportation has stopped and public transit cannot be used. Like there's this impact of uh, uh, the pandemic that we couldn't imagine and people are very frustrated to some extent uh, in places where there is a complete lockdown. I was speaking to somebody from Dubai earlier today and they have a complete shutdown. They cannot do anything. Uh, so the world has definitely changed. I want to talk about the future now. I want to talk about your insights on what would you ideally see happen uh, in the world when it comes to transportation or transportation being as a means of communication. Like right now, we are just doing as many Zoom conferences as possible. And it's an overload of Zoom. I really believe we need to connect with people on a physical, personal basis as well. Let's talk about the future. What would you like the future to be in the next 15, short term, 15 years, 15 years, and then longer term, maybe 20, 25 years? What do you see happening? 
So I do think the most important challenge we have, which couples to everything from telecommunications to food production to transportation, is climate change, is protecting the planet. So the, the irony is that this terrible crisis that we're in will probably result in a shift in the way that we do business, which is that we are going to have probably less in-person meetings, less travel, which helps, actually helps to solve the problem of climate change. So even though it's not the same thing to have a Zoom uh, web conference, for example, instead of meeting people in a networking event, being able to do more of your work working from home actually makes a lot of sense. I have a lot of friends. I work from home myself, actually. Standards, because isn't that different for me? I have a lot of friends who are in offices who also hold their teleconferences in their offices at work instead of going into the conference room. So I think what we'll see is a reduction in um, workers going in every day when they have jobs and currently done remotely. And then I think we should limit the travel to essential meetings and conferences. Of course, I'm, a, I'm guilty of international travel like you can't believe, attending conferences all over the world. I see myself reducing that as well. It's just part of how we're responding to the communicability of these, um, these infectious diseases. So there's that. Um, but I do see an opportunity to introduce new technologies into the transportation space to make aviation, for example, more sustainable, to reduce the carbon footprint of um, air travel, where we're already doing what we can uh, and it's moving along well, probably needs to go faster in ground-based transport. But I see the start and the shift to a truly sustainable aviation movement moving forward in the next 10 to 15 years. I see the elimination of private ownership of cars. Yep. I see the reliance on ground-based electric uh, public transportation and mastery. And I think there's a there's a huge debate right now uh, that once the COVID nineteen crisis is over, will people and organizations and companies and and the corporates go back to the way they were? And I I really believe unless you don't, unless they don't see the value in terms of the economic value, the overall value as an organization in in changing their habits, I don't think anybody will go back. Um, or anybody will keep this era of web conferencing on. So it's a really interesting phase that we're going to enter once the crisis is over, you know, I don't know, the next six to five to six to seven months. Um, so it's definitely something that I'm looking forward to. Tell us a little bit about your company right now. You, you, you've got your own company. Uh, you work with Airspace Experience Technologies. Tell us a little bit about your current work. So I am doing a lot of research in the area of aviation right now. So I have a, a co-founder of a startup which is working on electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft for urban air mobility, which is airspace experience technologies. And I'm also working on research in the areas of supersonic aviation, uh, working specifically on the aerodynamics and how to mitigate the sonic boom. And I'm also working in the area of using hydrogen to be able to fuel the aircraft of the future using hydrogen fuel cells. And so all of these three areas, some of them address sustainability, some of them don't, at least they address noise pollution. But I think that these are really hot topics in the aviation space, and we can use these research um, opportunities and activities to make aviation fully sustainable. Amazing. Can you tell us more about uh, where can our viewers find you, look up your work, connect with you? Oh, sure. So um, I'm pretty active on social media. Uh, so my Twitter is Dr. Underscore Astro. Um, so you can always tweet me, and uh, I, I like to comment on things related to space travel as well as societal things, climate change, and I love cats. <laughs> You'll see lots of pictures of my cats on my Twitter feed as well. Mm -hmm. um, I also have a website, which is anitasengupta.com, and I'm also active on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, and I do a lot of public speaking, so if you Google me, you can find my TEDx talk, 
um, my Royal Institution talk. So if you're interested in Mars exploration or the Hyperloop or urban air mobility, um, there's a lot of content that I already have out there, which is free uh, for you to watch. I also teach as a professor at USC in the Astronautics and Space Technology Department. So anybody who's looking for a master's degree in astronautical engineering can take one of my classes. Amazing. I love it. And also, uh, our viewers and listeners can pick up a copy of Aftershock and support the movement of uh, people thinking uh, like yourself and people what you've written in here to read that. I really enjoyed reading what you've written. So Aftershock is available on, um, I think John Schroeder now needs to pay me commissions for all these sales that I'm making on these, uh, on these web conferences. But unfortunately, not, I'm not getting paid anything. But I am one of the contributors in there. Pick up a copy of Aftershock on Amazon.com, uh, and it's a really great read. I really recommend everybody having a copy of this and reading through it and just, just understanding what people like yourself and many others who have written in it are thinking and what the future looks like. I really believe Aftershock is like a Bible for management and leaders today who want to understand the future. So it's really, uh, I just love it. I personally love it. Um, Dr. Anita Sandler. I can pick up, I, I just wanted to at least get my, the book in the frame with me too. <laughs> yeah. And so folks, uh, this is uh, the Aftershock episode series. I'm interviewing Dr. Uh, Sen Gupta and Dr. Anita Sen Gupta. It's been uh, incredible and fascinating speaking with experts who have contributed into uh, to the book. Uh, do get a copy of uh, Aftershock. Listen to the podcast and listen to all the episodes uh, that I have. Uh, I have interviewed uh, other folks. Uh, there's incredible insights that you'll get from uh, from this podcast series, and um, I'm hoping it changes the direction of your organization uh, and and the way you look at the future. Here we are. We both have a copy of Aftershock in our hands. Thank you so much for your time. Get this book, folks, and uh, and enjoy it. Uh, Dr. Sen Gupta, thank you so much for your time. I really hope and wish that you come out of um, uh, this COVID-19 era uh, without a scratch. And I wish you and your family all the best. And we'll catch you on the other side. Same for you. Stay safe in Canada. And uh, it was great meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com.